All right. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Glad you are all able to be here. Those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here at Lower Town. And uh, believe it or not, this is actually our five-year anniversary. So uh, happy birthday to us. Yeah. Uh, we survived. Uh, no, I, we've, I'm really excited for where we're at. And I know God has been doing some things here and, and really, really excited for it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I uh, know just a, maybe a point of, uh, I don't know what you call it, but uh, our restrooms are through here down the, down the uh, hallway. Um, they're not that way. Uh, so just want to let you know that. Uh, if you're checking out Hope, checking out Christianity, uh, you came in on a good week because uh, we are kicking off a new series. Uh, we're going to spend the next eight weeks in a series called Made for God, uh, Identity, Gender, and Sex. Um, at, at Hope, we don't uh, normally, maybe not normal is not the right word, but typically or, or whatever, we, we don't like to follow um, uh, just culture and things that are happening or hot topic button items and things like that. But uh, this is one of those things where uh, I... Honestly, I've been in, I've been in full-time ministry now for 12 years, uh, and I have never had a series like this. Uh, I have never talked about uh, gender or, or sex necessarily, uh, spe- specifically on, on these topics. And, um, and so normally this is something that we would, you know, when I, when I grew up, we had church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. This would have been like a topic reserved for like Wednesday night, you know, when there's just nobody there or anything like that. Uh, but, but we thought, you know, hey, this is something we need to discuss uh, and talk about, something I, I need to learn, and, I, and I'm going to mention that. I'm, I need to learn a lot on these uh, topics, and so, uh, and so we're going to be doing that over the next eight weeks. And so um, this sermon in particular is going to be an introduction sermon, uh, really, for the whole series, that this is going to kind of set the tone, if you will, uh, and, and hopefully get our hearts and minds ready for the next seven uh, weeks. Uh, so I have an a, a introductory question for you, and that is, uh, what defines me? What makes me me? And you can answer that or ask that question to yourself in the first person of what makes you you? What, what makes me me? What defines you? That if I were to hand out a, a three-by-five card to all of you and you had to write out a description of who you are or who I am, what would you write down? And ultimately, who has the final say? Uh, do I get to choose who I am? Does my best friend know me better than I know myself? Or does, does God know me better than I know myself? And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this week. And so when we answer the question, uh, who am I? Uh, is my clicker not working? Are you doing that? You didn't do that. Okay, I just got to hit my clicker eight times for it to go to the next slide. That's great. I'm sure the battery's just running out. No big deal. We'll deal with it later. When we answer the question, who am I, specifically on these aspects of identity, gender, and sex, right? These three aspects play a huge role in who I am, my identity, my gender, my sex, when I answer that question of who, who am I. And culturally, these topics are extremely significant. So again, who has the final say? Am I the authority over myself? And I think it's pretty captain obvious here, right? That, that obviously for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at what does the Bible say? What does God say about who we are and who is he? And does he have authority over us? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And as I mentioned before, um, I, I need this. I, I'm not like superior to anybody in here. I'm not the expert on any of these topics that we're going to be discussing. 
uh, that I am doing a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of meetings with people uh, that are experts in fields or experts uh, uh, that, have, uh, that are maybe um, uh, identifying differently than the way I identify, and I want to learn from them. And, and at the same time, I want to filter that through what the Bible has to say. Um, and yet, I still want to be in charge of me. And to be honest, I want to be in charge of you. <laughs> That's just human nature. I just want you to listen to me, right? But I don't know everything. And I don't claim to know everything, but I do know a God who does. And so what does he reveal about himself? What does he reveal about his will that we can learn from about ourselves. And so this week's sermon, as you can read, there is the authority of God. And so what uh, comes to mind when we think of authority? What comes to mind when we think of authority, right? Uh, or, or some kind of, of figure, uh, right? And I actually want to ask that question. When, when you hear that word authority, what do you think of? What, seriously, like, there's like a little, little bit of feedback here. What do you think of when you think of authority? Rules, yeah. Anything else? Government? What? King? Boss? Yeah, all right. And usually, right, those words that we just said, they're not usually always like a good thing, right? They don't, they don't like conjure up happy feelings, right? When we think of police or anything that we would say, this is, this is my authority in in this thing, right? Usually these feelings are, are negative or uh, distrust, if you will. And so um, when I think of it though, I, I specifically think of uh, police and, and traffic and Paul, I'm just gonna have to, I don't know what's going on here. So I'm just gonna, boop, next slide. <laughs> I don't know if that, if anything does, I don't know what to do with that thing. Thanks dude. All right, we're back in track here. So. Uh, what comes to mind when you think of authority? So this is, this is always amazing to me because um, I would view myself as a good driver. And statistically, most of you would view yourselves as good drivers. Uh, and, and so when there's a posted speed limit, we think that's for everybody else, right? That's not for me. Uh, I, I'm a good driver. I can look at my driving record. I have not, hey, this is true. I have not had any kind of ticket uh, since I was 16. Uh, the last time I got a ticket, I was drag racing an under undercover cop, and I haven't done it since, right? I learned my lesson. Don't do that. That was bad, <laughs> right? I paid the penalty uh, to the authorities that may be, and my mom. <laughs> she took my car, right? That was not okay. Uh, it was bad, right? But we, we see things around us, and we go, oh, no, that's, that's not for me. And if I'm flying down the highway, I'm okay. I'm in control. But if somebody passes me, they're an out-of-control jerk. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just human nature. And yet, uh, and this is true, this, I, just this last week, this, just actually on, on uh, Friday, uh, Henry, my oldest kid, he's now in kindergarten. It's very sad, uh, but no, I'm excited for him. And I had to go pick him up uh, from, from, you know, the, the line. You know, I remember doing that as a kid. Unless you're homeschooled, then you were just always in line. I don't know. Um, and uh, <laughs> my wife is homeschooled. I'm allowed to make jokes like that. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm going to pick up my son and we're walking, you know, and there's like this huge parking lot and all these kids and I see him and I, and I cut, you know, over through the parking lot and the principal of the school is like, Hey, could you use the crosswalk next time? And I'm like, like, bro, like I'm 37. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't need the crosswalk. You know what I mean? Like I can handle this. I get that it's there for the kids. I don't need that. 
right? Which is there's something about the authority. Some, my, you're my kid's principal. You, you know, you're in charge of me. You can't tell me where to walk that I just, I buck at that, right? I think we all do. We, we have this initial response when it comes to this. And so then, um, <laughs> so the next one, this is gonna be fun. This will be a good one. Uh, the next one here, this is, this is what's called the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. You might be familiar with this. Uh, this is where these, this kind of the X and the Y axis, I always forget, X is going up and down, correct? Nope, ah, man, I had 50-50 chance to sound smart and I missed it. X is going uh, parallel or, or horizontal there where it says knowledge. And then the Y axis going up where it's confidence. And so uh, I, when I have a little bit of knowledge on something, I'm usually, and this is just humanly speaking, we are very confident even though we're very ignorant on a specific topic. And then we learn a little bit more, right? And then we realize, oh, I, I actually am not the end. Uh, I don't know everything there is to know about this given topic. And then when I'm an expert on a topic, I've written books about this. I've, I've thoroughly engaged this topic um, that when we, when we would, if someone were to ask me, how confident are you in this any given topic? that it's lower than the person who has little knowledge and is ignorant. There's just an overconfidence. And this is true over so many different things. Uh, I, you know, I've mentioned this, obviously, you know this about me. I played, played football, and I remember in, in college, my uh, defensive line coach, uh, Doc Mal, Dr. Malmanger, we call him Doc Mal, was like a five-foot-four old dude. Dude's never played a snap of football in his life. And here I am, uh, thinking, and again, I, I was way undersized for playing defensive line and playing DN, and yet thinking because I've played football, and now here I am as you know a 19-year-old kid, I know more than Dr. Malmanger. Dr. Malmanger, you you only have a PhD in, in in statistics and Greek. You got two PhDs. It doesn't apply to football. I know more than you, so don't tell me how to do a swim move. You've never done one in your life. No, Dr. Malman, you've studied this, right? More than I have. You're the expert in this, and yet there's, a, there's something that says, oh, if, you, if I haven't done it, if you haven't experienced it, then there's no way that you can talk about this. And there's something that happens, and that's also true of this, that you need to be in my position. You don't know what it's like, especially when it comes to authority. And so this is a universal condition, right? We have this resistance to authority that we have always had. And so I want to look at Genesis 3. You go ahead, two slides there. This Genesis chapter 3, uh, 1 through 5, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because Paul is going to be uh, looking at this a little bit more intensely next week. Um, this is the beginning. This is how the, the book starts, that everything is good. There's harmony. Uh, there, there is no uh, Dunder Kruger, Kruger effect. Everything's good. Everything's happy. There's no bucking at the authority that God has with his children, that yes, we are uh, in harmony with one another, that there is a creation that's submitting willingly under their creator who has ultimate authority, and yet something happens here. The serpent comes to the woman and says, did God really say? He challenges the exact words of God that you must not eat from the tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent then says, you 
will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then it goes on to say that Eve sees this and sees this food is good for food and, and that it's profitable for gaining wisdom. Now, what is it that Eve really is going after here? What is it that's so enticing about this? It's autonomy. It's self-rule. It's self-governance. God can't tell me what to do. That's the lie that the serpent, that Satan puts in the ear of Adam and Eve as they're standing there. No, no, no. You can do what you want to do. And from that moment on, everything changes. From that moment on, all of humanity says, I want autonomy. I get to determine for myself what is good, and I get to determine for myself what is evil. God, you can't do that for me. This is now in our nature. This is true since we were kids. I've mentioned this about my son, Henry. He's gotten a little better about this, but he uses that phrase, I want to do what I want to do. I just want to do it my way, right? And if, if you grew up a Sinatra fan, right? I'll do it my way, right? It's just there's something about us that says, no, I'm going to do this way, my way. Um, this is the nerd of me is going to come out of here a little bit, and that's okay. A lot of you know this about me, that, I, that I, I play video games, right? It's not weird. It's not bad. It's not good, right? This is what we do uh, as, as men. Uh, we can play video games and still be good men, <laughs> right? No, that's okay. It's a different sermon for a different day. Uh, anyways, I was playing Fortnite, which I don't ever play Fortnite, okay? I don't. It's not my thing. But my, my uh, best friend and my brother played a lot. And so I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll join you uh, one night. So I did. Don't play it that often, not very good at it. You know, they're, they're, they're all, you know, ranked 250 and I'm two. They're like, dude, you got to buy this, this skin. I'm like, I'm not paying money for an outfit in the game. I'm not doing it. Anyways, I was playing this game and my wife was, you know, in the same room and she was watching TV. And I was, I don't know, not playing the game right. And my brother's yelling at me, dude, you got to stick with us. You got to stick with us. And I said out loud, no, no, I'm going to go do my own thing. And then I heard my wife, you know, through my headset go, okay, Henry. Right. Cause there's just, <laughs> there's something that I just like, no, 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 I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I don't know what I'm doing, but I think I know what I'm doing. I think I know better than you guys who have the expertise in this. And so while it's a universal condition, because of the fall to resist authority, I think that we would all agree that we benefit from someone having authority, to actually have authority over us. And so uh, we have this, um, an illustration that I have, if we think, especially in light of uh, the kickoff of football coming up here, I know Thursday, technically football started. Oh, thank you. Is this going to work? Oh, look at this. I don't know what you did, but he worked his magic. Thank you. Um, and if, and some of you, uh, if you're a Packer fan, like I know the majority of you are, uh, good Christian people, um, that, uh, this was back in 2012, uh, this play specific play is called the fail Mary, uh, or the inaccurate reception or well, there's all kinds of names for this play. Uh, and, and the reason is because there was a strike with the actual referees who would are clearly are the authority. Right, if you've ever gone to a little league game and you've seen parents or kids losing their minds, that's because there's usually not a ref who's taking charge and has control of a situation. 
And so the refs are on, this is, this is in the NFL, and I think those refs, I could totally be wrong on this, but this also, uh, the union goes down to the NCAA as well, to the college leagues. And so they had to go to the high school level, which is nothing wrong with high school refs, but they're not used to this level of play, the speed, but also the pressure, right? You've got high school refs that are now refing the NFL in front of, not just in front of like 70,000 actual fans, but now in front of millions of people watching this thing live on TV. And there's this last second play, this bomb, beautiful Hail Mary pass that Aaron Rodgers does, that he always does, because he's amazing. And he, and he ends up landing it in his receiver's hands, but there's also then another defender who's right there, and they both kind of catch the ball simultaneously. And so you can see one of the refs there, one of the line judges, has his hands up, touchdown! And the other ref is waving it off, incomplete pass! Right? And they both are doing this at the same time. And you can see ESPN, their score there, they've already given the touchdown to the Packers, but they don't. They take it back and the Packers end up losing this really significant game against the Seahawks. When we don't have an authority in our life, it's bad. Like they're, they're, we, we want, we not just necessarily we want, that's not always the case, but we need. We need to have some kind of authority over us. And so while we would agree that we benefit from someone having authority, but does that make me your authority? And if you've been sitting there and you've been wondering, uh, who, who are you to talk to me this way? Um, you wouldn't be wrong if you had the thought, but the church, capital C Church, has abused their power of authority for thousands of years. What makes you any different? And that's a good question to ask. I have to ask myself that same question. Who am I? What makes me different from my predecessors that have stood in this building even? Am I better? Am I superior? Those laws aren't for me. I'm better than that. And I have to ask myself that question. There's a phrase that we use uh, sometimes around hope, uh, this idea of that absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mentioned this in the weekly email that I send out um, that I've been uh, re-watching the, the Hobbit movies. I uh, started reading that with, with Henry, and it was a little, little, little too dark too fast uh, for a five-year-old. Um, so we started reading the Chronicles of Narnia instead, way better uh, for a child. Uh, and so but anyways, I, I re-watched the movies, and as I was watching them, I realized I never, I've never watched these movies. Uh, so it was kind of fun to, to, to watch these, these movies. But there's a character in there named Thorin Oldenshield or Oakenshield or something like that. Thorin is his name. He's a dwarven king, right? And he has this, they, they call it a sickness for this gold and power and authority, right? And, and so he's, he's just a normal guy. He's with his clan, he's with his guys. And then he gets to this, this mountain where, where this huge dragon was killed, not by him, but by some other guy. And he's like, now I'm king, I'm in charge. And it corrupts him, this power. And it, and it ends up being really bad. Of course, he snaps out of it somehow and ends up being a great king. Actually, he dies, right? Yeah, he dies real fast after that. Um, anyways, so, but it corrupts him, right? When you have absolute power, it's gonna corrupt. And so what is it that makes this pulpit or me or Paul or Core downtown or, or uh, uh, Drew in Columbia Heights, uh, what, what makes us any different? And I think one of the main differences is that I know that I'm not the final authority. I'm not. Uh, I don't have absolute power. Uh, we believe in a uh, theology or a, a term 
called Sola Scriptura. It's something that's been around for the last, you know, 500 years. Um, and I've mentioned this before that in here, uh, that the Bible uh, back there in that stained glass window is the highest thing. That was done for a reason. And when there's, there's even within, um, I always get this word wrong, architecture. Did I say that right? Within architecture, there's, there's symbolism. Uh, and so Baptists traditionally always had the communion table up front and then the pulpit in the middle because it was saying that the word of God is central. That on a Sunday morning, it's not even necessarily the teaching of the word of God that's the central thing. It is the teaching of the word of God that is the central thing. That the person talking, myself or whoever might be up here, are not the final say. And my predecessors didn't always have this idea of sola scriptura. And so I know I need these sermons. I need these sermons. And I need to hear God's word preached to myself uh, more than ever. And I think more than you. There's an old, I forget who said it, some old preacher who's been dead for who knows how long, had this phrase that if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pew. Meaning, if I don't understand the concepts that I'm teaching, there's no way I can possibly communicate to you uh, what, what, that we, what we need to know. And so I need this. I need to be able to understand this. I need to understand and listen to what God says about this more than ever. Uh, this past week, because uh, again, scripture, when we look at it this past, we just started our, our classes. And so um, Paul and I co-teach a systematic theology class um, and uh, this, this last week was our first real class, and I uh, taught on Scripture. How do we get our Bible? It is one of my favorite classes to teach, because when, those, when I have a day when I'm really struggling with my faith, when I have a day where I'm like, ah, man, is this, is this real? I mean, Jesus, God, sin, eternal life, I mean, is this really real? <laughs> One of the things that I always go back to is this. I had to grab, I don't normally preach the Bible, but I was like, I can't preach about the Bible and not have a Bible, right? It's just there for a, for a prop. No, it's not true. I'm using the Bible. <laughs> that the Bible that we have, how we got it is so mind boggling that I go back to just the data, the statistics, not just necessarily the contents of it, but how we got it. And I go, oh yeah, that's impossible. It is impossible that we ended up with this book as accurate as it is. It's impossible. Unless God has been orchestrating it all. This week though, Paul is going to be teaching that class on the authority of scripture. And we use, as a lot of you I know, we use a, a systematic theology book. It's an introduction to systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. And in this chapter, this is his opening statement. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Whoa! Like, that's, a, that's an intense statement. Now, he's going to go on and explain that, and I'm not going to necessarily get into that. If you want to learn more about that, sign up for the class. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Right? But when we look at the Word of God, this is my authority. It's not my only authority. It's not so low scriptura. It's not my only authority. It's my highest authority. And so when there's something that the scriptures don't necessarily deal with a whole lot, well, then I'm allowed to go to other things and experts, but I filter it through the word of God. 
I have to do that because this is my highest authority. And I believe thoroughly in this concept that Martin Luther introduced the world to, at least put a name to it, called the priesthood of believers. That is that you all need to filter what I say through this book because I'm not the final authority, God is. And so not only do I filter my life through the word of God, but you should too. So now then let's look at the one who is the only one with absolute power, but who is also incorruptible. I want to look at Jesus and I just have a couple passages that I want to I want to look at just briefly. I'm not going to necessarily go through this again, kind of word by word or line by line, but I want to highlight a couple different passages that just highlight the authority that God has, that Jesus has, that his words have, because Jesus is the word. In the beginning, John 1 was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So in John chapter 15, we read this, Father, the hour has come. Jesus is praying here. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those that you have given him. And now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is saying, this has always been the case. And yet there's something about Jesus dying and being raised from the dead and ascending that gives him ultimate authority over everything, including death. Another passage in Matthew 28. This is after Jesus' resurrection, right before he ascends into heaven and his throne of authority that he's talking with his disciples. And the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, that is Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Right? Whoa, is this Jesus? I just saw him die. I just saw him die. I, like I said, I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia and last night I got to the point where Aslan dies. It was right, right before Henry's bedtime. And Aslan dies on the stone table, right? The witch kills him. And Henry's, you know, got tears in his eyes. Wait, Aslan's dead? Yeah, buddy, have a good night. We'll finish tomorrow. <laughs> and he, I couldn't do that to him. I was like, all right, dude, hey, I know it's past your bedtime, but we got, we, we got to read one more chapter here. And as we read it, and before I even got there, Henry just said, man, I wish, ha, <laughs> sorry. He said, I'm not making this up. Last night he said, man, I wish, I wish Aslan could come back to life. I was like, yeah, man. All right, we're going to read the next chapter, right? We got to read the next chapter. That's not how the story ends. He gets authority because he raises himself from the dead. And they doubt, is that really Jesus? I just saw him die. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? When we look at Jesus, I don't, when we read the story of Jesus, we want Jesus to have the authority. The uncorruptible individual we want him to have all authority. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so in light of his authority on his own word, and he is the word of God, therefore, if he does have all authority and we are followers of him, we have bent the knee and we've kneeled down to King Jesus, we're going to listen to what he has to say. And so the next coming weeks, there are things that I think are going to be difficult to hear for, for everybody, regardless of where you stand. I think there's some things that are going to be said that we're going to go, whoa, that makes me really uncomfortable. And there are things that might be said, you're going to go, wow, you're showing a little bit too much grace here. Because I think that's the gospel. I think that's how Jesus interacts with difficult topics. And yet this isn't some kind of law that I will listen. It's no, no, I, I will listen because I, I get to, I want to listen. That's what the gospel does. It changes our heart and our attitudes towards our authority of Jesus. One of my all-time favorite passages on the authority of Jesus. And I mean, just to like seal the tangible, real power and authority that Jesus has is in Luke chapter 8, 22 through 25. I'm going to read this and then we're going to talk about it. It says this, then one day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And so they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. And a squall came on the, on the lake. And so the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we are going to drown. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Sigmund Freud, psychologist and psychoanalyst, I don't know if that's a word or not, but I think he coined that. I haven't studied him since college. Um, I, have a, I have a quote here, just from, not from him, but someone talking about him. Freud's psychoanalytic perspective viewed religion as the unconscious mind's need for wish fulfillment. Because people need to feel secure and absolve themselves of their own guilt. Freud believed that they chose to believe in God who represents a powerful father figure. We've all heard the phrase, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. And that's what Freud's talking about. That when there's some kind of calamity, some kind of natural disaster or, or something in my life that I'm fearful of this thing to my physical body, Freud says we've invented some kind of God, some kind of creator or deity that I can reach out to or think I reach out to to give me comfort in a time of discomfort or time of danger or some kind of terrifying situation. And if Sigmund Freud were here this morning, besides the fact that it would be creepy because he's been dead for a while, that if he were sitting here right now, I would look him in the face and I would say, yeah, but have you ever actually met Jesus? Not some figment of my imagination. Because in this passage, I'm going to read again, I want to highlight a couple things. Again, it says this, one day Jesus says to his disciples, let us go over to their side of the lake. So they got in the boat and set out. They sailed and when it was, as they sailed, he, that is Jesus, fell asleep. A squall came down the lake at this natural disaster. This thing is happening. The boat is being swamped. It's being filled with water. 
don't know if you've ever been on a, on a lake or, or anything like that when your boat is being filled with water, even though you know how to swim, even though you got a life jacket, it's, it's terrifying. They're in great danger. Most of them are fishermen. They know what's going on here. And the disciples went and they woke him saying, Master, Master, we are going to drown. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. Right? Jesus gets up and he says to nature, stop it. That's enough. And the storm subsided. I mean, just, I, I mean, really, right? Again, if you grew up in the church, we read these stories, we know these stories. Put yourself in that situation. You are on a boat with waves crashing in. Your boat is filling with water and you wake up your, your master or your boss or somebody that you look up to and you're like, hey man, uh, you gotta wake up. I don't know how you're sleeping through this, but we're all gonna die. And he's like, stormed, that's enough. And it stops. So what happens? I love the word though that's used here. It says in fear and amazement, they asked one another in fear. They were in danger from the storm, but they are sorely afraid, as one translation says, of Jesus. See, Sigmund Freud might think, oh no, we invented some God to make us feel better, but what happens when the God is more fearful and more to be afraid of than the actual calamity that's happening to me? That's Jesus. That's our authority. And they ask themselves, who is this? The King James Version asked the question, what manner of man is this? I don't even have a category to put Jesus in. I, what, who, what is this? What, who are you? He's God. Ultimate authority, even over the winds and the waves and the sea and the rain. And so if God is man-made, why make a God who is more terrifying than the real initial thing that I fear? He has the power. He has the authority. And while he is holy and separate and unapproachable, in that same moment, in that same breath, he kneels beside us. He puts his arm around us. And he says, I love you. And I love you so much. I want to tell you who you are in me. This is who I am, and that's now how you identify as. I am king. As I mentioned last night, I was reading the Chronicles of Narnia, the, specifically the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I thought about doing it in chronological order, but I figured C.S. Lewis knew better than me. I bent the knee to his expertise, if you will. And there's this, uh, I was reading this. Uh, this is what happens when you're, when you're a pastor. Is you, and no matter what you're doing, you're like, oh, that, that'll preach. Uh, oh, that, that thing. Oh, I could use that as an illustration. Just no matter what, right? You're all always under scrutiny for being a sermon illustration. And, uh, and I'm reading this. And, and this, I was so excited for Henry because this was the first description uh, of Aslan, right? And I hadn't talked to him at all about Aslan is like this analogy of Jesus. I didn't, I didn't do any of that. Just, just reading the story. And so this is the first description that we get in the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically in the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of Aslan. 
the, the kids and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver uh, see him from afar. And, uh, and this is the description. But as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been to Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of that now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. <laughs> That's Jesus. <laughs> That's our authority. And I love, again, the description. And I, I know he's just, I'm using this, I'm, 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 I'm squeezing this illustration for all it's got, right? But that description, when, when the beaver is talking about Aslan, this great lion, and the kids are asking questions. They haven't seen him yet. They haven't met him yet. Yeah. And Lucy keeps asking, yeah, but is he safe? Is he safe? He's a lion. And Beaver says, who said anything about being safe? He's not safe, but he's good. That's our authority. That's our king. And there are times when that king looks at us and he sees right into who we are, our souls and our sin and our distrust of him and who he is and who he said and revealed himself as. And he says, I love you. I care for you. And yet I need you to know who I am. And sometimes when we get a real glimpse of God for who he is, it causes us to tremble. And so in gospel application, simply put, the living God of the universe has revealed his will to us through his word, the Bible. And he claims all authority over us, even what we think or what culture tells us about our identity, our gender, and sex. And so we're going to spend the next seven weeks diving pretty deeply into these topics and looking and filtering everything through the word of God and through that authority. And there are going to be times where I'm going to say something that's probably wrong because I am not God. But I want you to filter everything through the word of God. What is it that God actually says about these topics? We're going to have communion like we do every week. We're going to come forward and we're going to take these elements. We're going to grab the these cups that contain the wafer that represents the broken body of Christ and the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. And for thousands of years, the church has been gathering and partaking of these elements, this meal together to remember Jesus, to remember the finished work of Christ on the cross for my sin, to remember that he is on the throne, not me, that I don't have final say of who I am. My king does. Jesus does. And so you don't need to be a member of this church or any church for that matter, but if you've ever bowed the knee to King Jesus, we would love for you to partake of these elements with us this morning. And would you, along with me, pray earnestly to this king that he would prepare our hearts over the next seven weeks to listen to the word of God. Not me, not Paul, 
We are not the experts. But with the Bible being our highest authority, let us filter everything that we know about these topics through his word. I'm going to pray that. My prayer is that you would pray that as well for yourself. That whatever our preconceived notions and and pre-understandings and predeterminations and whatever it is that we have about these topics, that we would just listen to what God has to say with humility, myself included. Let me pray, and then the worship team is going to sing two more songs as we partake of these elements together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our Father. Even, even that word, Father, sometimes can conjure up ideas of discomfort, disbelief. But you are good. You are holy. You only, you only have our best interest in mind. That you are not a God or a king who just wants to watch us suffer and squirm under your authority. That you are not a God who abuses your authority, but you are a God who has generously revealed who you are and how it is that followers of you, followers of your son, being filled with your spirit, you have revealed in your word how it is that you would like us to live and how it is that we should identify as, as followers of you. So I just pray that this would be true, not just the next seven weeks, but for the remainder of our lives, that we would humbly bow the knee to King Jesus over and over in every aspect of our life, that there are going to be things that are going to be exposed in our own hearts over the next seven weeks that are going to make us uncomfortable and are going to make us doubt who you are and doubt your authority. But God, will we see you for who you are? Would we see you like Lucy and Susan and Peter? Would we look at you with awe and majesty and love and warmth and at the same time, a healthy fear of who you are and the authority that you have over our lives? I pray now as we partake of these elements that you'd be honored, that you'd be glorified in us, in your church, in your bride, in your sheep, in your subjects to, as we honor you, our King. And we pray these things in your son, Jesus' name, amen.